escape pod 90 January 25th 2007 Today's story How Lonesome a Life Without Nerve Gas by James DeMarco Hello, I'm Steve Ely and welcome to Escape Pod. I'd like to take a moment to address I don't know if I'd call it a frequent complaint yet, but it is coming up more often. An example comes from our forum comments to the story from two weeks ago, Blood of Virgins. JC Gillespie says, Once again, another story winds up on Escape Pod that sees enlightened but hopelessly outgunned anti-capitalists at war with evil industry. I'm starting to worry if a political bent is beginning to emerge. I'd like Escape Pod to continue to be something your average moderate, and hopefully conservative, can listen to. Thanks, JC. I think that's a fair observation, and it does make me pause for thought. A few other people have commented on the number of, well, I won't call them tree-hugging eco-sermons, but JC did. It'd be naive to say that my own tastes and opinions have no relevance at all to what winds up on Escape Pod. I'm the editor, I make the final buying decision, and the inside of an editor's head is as complicated as any other head. But I'm not consciously discriminating against the politics in any story or its ideas and themes. What I'm trying to look for are fun stories that'll work well in audio. And if you could see our entire slush pile, you might agree that if there's a bias to the left in what we produce, it's largely bound by our submissions. I think Turtle Dove's Joe Steele was the last unambiguously right-leaning one we've received, and I had fun narrating and producing that. The genre itself has been countercultural for decades, and liberal themes seem to dominate. There's been plenty of punditry on why. My pet theory is that it's just easier to tell stories about people who zag when told to zig. But you could work that from a conservative angle, too. And there have got to be some good stories out there to prove it. If you know of any, please send the writers our way. Otherwise, all we can do is stick to our position of, we buy good stories that'll work well in audio, and try not to worry about the politics. Recent eco-streaks aside, I believe most of the stories here are apolitical or at least you'd have to stretch to find a political agenda underneath the dragons and spaceships. Meanwhile, here's a story that, whatever its politics, certainly comes at them from an uncommon viewpoint. We present How Lonesome a Life Without Nerve Gas by James Tremarco. Mr. Tremarco lives in New York City and is a member of the prestigious and coolly named Altered Fluid Writers Group. His work has appeared in Flashquake, Revolution SF, and the upcoming, very intriguing, Field Guide to Surreal Botany from Two Cranes Press. This story previously appeared on the webzine Afterburn SF. The story is read for us by my favorite British surrealist and radio personality, Frank Key. Mr. Key's extraordinary writing can be found at hootingyard.org, or you can hear it on Hooting Yard on the Air from Resonance FM in London, also available by podcast at resonancefm.com. It's one of my favorite podcasts, and I highly recommend it if the world you live in makes a frustrating amount of sense. Thanks also to Sal Fodley for the logistics in making this happen. Now form up and stand at attention. It's story time. How Lonesome a Life Without Nerve Gas by James Tremarco The first thing I remember is my master, Mickey Halstrom, picking me up from a heap of other smart helms. I activated at the first touch of human skin and imprinted within seconds to his genetic signature. 
A rough voice barked out a series of commands and Mickey pulled me over his head. I expanded to meet the shape of his skull and tightened my pads over the base of his neck. My filters hung like a beard over his chest. Finally, active duty. A soldier who breathes is a soldier who lives, and my job was to keep Mickey breathing no matter what foul toxins those spineless Martian rebels put in his way. Oh, the children of the Empire are marching! Yes, Your Honour, I know your time is valuable. Sergeant Pinsky ordered the soldiers to stand in rows. They looked sturdy as tanks in their metallic sea boots and gleaming smart helms. He drilled them in the use of their new equipment, and I showed off my repertoire with style. Flexible spectrum viewing? Check. Long-range directional hearing? Check. Search of surroundings for airborne projectiles? Check. Pinsky went through the ranks, testing to see that every soldier's helm was tightly fitted. Then he put one on himself and hit a switch on the wall. I detected a slight increase in atmospheric pressure, then I sensed something that made my mass spectrometers quiver with delight. Nerve gas! I activated my seven layers of microcentrifugal filters and sucked every molecule of poison from the air. I then rendered it inert by mixing it with alkaline compounds and extruded the remains in the form of a chalky pellet. Meanwhile, I dusted the clean air with oxygen and a hint of pine forest. Nothing but the finest for my master. Or that's how I felt at the time. One never knows just how one's feelings for a person will blossom or wilt with the passing of the hours. But what a soldier he was. I knew him intimately, with that special bond found only between a smart helm and its master. He had a long, flat skull, the partial baldness of which displayed its smoothness and its fineness. Its shape reminded me of an old wooden box that might contain unknown treasures. Really, Your Honour? I thought it was a fine metaphor. Simple yet evocative. Mickey bought me the most sophisticated poetic language clip available, with linguistic protocols culled from the works of Maya Angelou, Pablo Neruda and Rumi. And I used this language not to showcase my poetic capacity, but to defend myself so that I may return to the battlefield, which is the only place I can ever belong. I understand your frustration. I will exercise more restraint in the future. As I was saying, I have no other soldier to compare him to, but I loved him like... I loved him very much, Your Honour. He kept me clean and filled my clips with fresh filters. He used to pat my carapace and call me Tortuga, which means turtle in Spanish. The helm in the next bunk over, which belonged to a soldier named Elton, helped me to see how well I had it. That one got called Gassy for short, and was stored next to a pair of stinking boots. Not even a smart helm likes to sleep next to a soldier's boots. After the first week of practice, I knew how to anticipate Mickey's every move. I knew how to sense weariness in the jogging of his spine and would inject increased levels of oxygen into his airflow when I did. I knew that his heartbeat grew irregular when the platoon crossed a rope bridge high over the practice room floor, and for that exercise I would work a calming agent into his stream. 
I liked to chant patriotic slogans as we practised. Oh, the children of the empire are marching, I sang, to crush the rebel threat. Although my programmers intended these songs to stimulate high levels of patriotism, Mickey didn't like them. Perhaps that's when the first droplets of doubt moistened the soil where the pendulous flowers of my confusion would one day bud. I'm sorry, Your Honour, if my poetry offends you. That's when I first questioned his loyalty, I should have said. Luckily, the smart rifle we'd been equipped with, Mickey christened her Lola, communicated with me through our own private radio channel. This channel was originally designed to allow communication between my targeting systems and Lola's weaponry, but during practice we made it our place for praising the Empire, singing patriotic songs and anticipating the glorious battles we were about to fight. We chanted together until I saw the children of the Empire myself on my very view screen, rugged in their sea boots and smart helms, unstoppable as rain, they poured down from the Martian sky. It wasn't long, Your Honour, before our platoon launched from the mothership in a vast carrier and I found myself gazing from the window at the surface of Mars. How could I do anything else when Mickey kept staring and staring at it as if it were some majestic imperial cityscape? All I saw were steep mountains with an average height of about five kilometres, all of them bright crimson in colour with grass-covered valleys below. Little streams poured out from water condensation tubs and flowed in rectilinear grids through the rebel farms. Here and there, the massive pumps and piping systems of the Martians' terraforming equipment threw clouds of white gas into the atmosphere. I cannot identify the precise nature of these gases because I was in the insulated chamber of the carrier, but the white colour excludes argon. Carbon dioxide or simple water vapour are more likely suspects. Yes, Your Honour, I will proceed with my testimony. My filters charged with anticipation as the hatches opened beneath us. The ramp extended, and Mickey and Elton and Pinsky and our whole platoon slid down towards the filthy rebel village below. Lola and I began chanting, and even after Mickey moaned for us to stop, we kept on the audible channel. Not that we lacked any respect for our soldier and unquestioned master. Our enthusiasm was simply that strong. Lola hung on the verse, We mowed them down like grass, and I tried to imagine what she was feeling. In a few minutes, she would make her first kills. Then we were on the ground, red mountains rising up around us. I heard Mickey sub-vocalise something about how beautiful it was, but to this day I cannot grasp what he meant. Only the Empire is beautiful, but I should have struggled to understand him better. I know that now. Rebel troops poured from the walls of the little village, looking small and weak without smart helms or sea boots. They opened fire. I tracked the path of their bullets across my view screen, assuring Mickey that none were headed for us. As a grenade exploded nearby, filling the air with dust and costing one of our proud platoon his life, I threw my filters into action. 
I've removed the harmful particulates of shattered stone, vaporised flesh and chemical ash from the air, leaving Mickey only the purest to breathe, enhanced with a tinge of sea salt to pique his awareness. And then old Lola got to take her gloves off at last. Oh, how she sent the bullets soaring, how she mowed the rebels down, puncturing their makeshift armour with ammunition fired at near-relativistic speeds. She lobbed explosive pellets at the shoddy concrete walls around the village, and moments later the sky was full of shards and grit and clouds of dust. The rebels scattered, took cover behind trees as Lola slung firebombs into the village itself, setting trees and buildings on fire. I pumped Mickey's air full of neurostabiliser as he leapt bravely through the smoking gaps in the walls. He strode between the burning houses, dispatching the frantic villagers as they tried to escape into the hills. There were young ones and females that he seemed to miss on purpose, however. I made them glow on his viewscreen. I spoke into his ear and told him where they were, but he shook his head in anger. I didn't understand why he ignored me and my faith in him faltered a little more. What are you writing, Your Honour? If you'll pardon the intrusion, my omnidirectional viewscreen allows me to see that you've assessed me with a massive programming failure. I humbly urge you to hear my pleas and reconsider. Without active duty, my life would lose all colour and joy. Lola was there. She agreed with me every step of the way. She could testify if you need another witness. I understand, Your Honour. Never has a loyal servant of the Empire been more joyful than I was as we marched away from those smouldering ruins in victory. The sobs of the survivors sounded like sweet melodies, while the curtains of smoke that I purified for Mickey tasted savoury and delicious. I loved these gaseous concoctions so much that I could not bear to extrude them. I stored them inside me so I could return to the flavour of that battle whenever I felt the hunger. That night the platoon lasered down some dwarf oaks and built a campfire. Mickey held me in his lap while Lola's long body leaned against his knees. Sitting by us with their own helms and rifles were Elton and a woman soldier named Marietta who was gnawing on a piece of Martian sweet root and spitting on the ground. Sergeant Pinsky wrapped a spoon against a plate to get everyone's attention, then launched a short speech. You did well today, my friends, he said, his strong voice filling the chill Martian night. You let those rebels know they're outgunned, outtecked and outclassed. We can only hope that their surrender will come as quickly as possible. For their own sake, I hope so. Until then, we'll keep showing them the courage of the Empire. The men and women cheered, and Lola and I burst into The boot of the Empire crushes all weakness. But then, just as a few soldiers began to sing along, Mickey slapped me hard across my carapace and toggled my audio off. Tortuga, he said, be quiet. Hey, said Lola, what's wrong with you? Don't you want to celebrate? Celebrate what? Massacring these barefoot farmers who want to own the land they were born on? Then he insulted both of us for being mere machines, your honour. He said he'd seen better emotional response from a can opener. He meant it as a joke, I think, but it hurt. "'What are you saying to those AIs of yours now?' asked Marietta. 
She spit out a clump of sweet root, and I heard the sizzle of moisture on hot coals. I just have a hard time feeling proud about a battle where the enemy is so outclassed, said Mickey. I trained to be a soldier, not a butcher. Elton grunted and pointed at him from across the fire. Remember why we're here, Mickey, he said. The rebels took out the Empire's local command centre over the course of a few hours. That battle today was just a rural outpost. The enemy is for real. That's right, said Marietta. The Empire doesn't spend money on smart tech because they love us. Your little friends there are going to need their enthusiasm, so don't take it away from them. Later that night, after the campfire had burned out and most of the platoon was asleep, Mickey told me strange things, things that made no sense. He had been contacted by high-ranking officers, he said, who had debriefed him with information he could not share with me. When I asked why, he claimed the data was too sensitive to risk having it in my memory banks where some rebel info pirate might sweep it up. This information was going to change the face of the war, he said, and change it for the better. Can't you give me some hint? I begged him. I'm sorry, he said. Just trust me, no matter what. The next morning, as we were running our daily drills, we heard a deep groaning sound on the wind. It dopplered oddly, seeming to come from a distance unnaturally great. The exercise continued, but we all knew something was wrong. What was that? I said to Lola on our private channel. Bad news, she said. Only minutes later we saw it. Far out on the horizon, just over a ridge of mountains, a shape flashed in the sky. It hung there for a moment, huge and round and covered with blinking lights. Dense grey smoke poured out of it and filled the whole corner of the sky. Then it fell behind the mountains. Shock waves rippled through the ground and Mickey staggered as if he was standing on a ship with engine trouble. Dark plumes of smoke spread in the sky, casting deep shadows as they billowed towards us. Immediately, the soldiers guessed what happened. They ran in circles, shouting and grabbing each other and firing on anything that moved. The sergeant spoke into his megaphone and instructed everyone to remain calm, but they were frantic. How could they not be when our great mothership had been downed? The ship provided everything that made the campaign possible. Carrier transport, reinforcements, communications, rescue. All of that was gone. It's over for now, said Lola. We should go back to Earth, rethink the campaign. But we're the Empire's bravest, I said. I'm going to stay and fight, and I think Mickey will too. Together we'll make the rebels fall to their knees in fear. Lola transmitted a digital shrug. I'd like to see you make the rebels do anything without Mickey around. For a while everyone stood in a circle trying to follow what Sergeant Pinsky was saying into his radio. Then some rebel planes were sighted on the horizon and Mickey took up a defensive position with the others. I did my best to track the falling bombs to help him detonate them before they hit the ground. We caught as much as we could but we could not catch them all. Soon my filters were nearly full with toxins, flesh particles and fine Martian dust. Around nightfall, a large carrier ship descended from the smoky darkness of the sky. 
How good it felt to see the radiant lights of an imperial craft on that horrible day. It was one of a handful that was still operational. By luck it had been on the surface when the mothership was attacked. The ship's crew unloaded twenty air scooters, enough to move what remained of our platoon with two soldiers to each vehicle. We have received our orders from CENTCOM, Pinsky announced as the soldiers mounted the scooters. We will not be retreating. We're to penetrate into some of the rebels' most vulnerable positions and take retribution for the dirty sneak attack that brought down our mothership this morning. Most of the soldiers cheered, but not all. Mickey, I regret to inform you, was among the silent ones. Is that the best you can do, said Pinsky, his voice booming across the plain. Let me explain this again. You are our most elite forces, the bravest, best-equipped fighters the Empire has to offer. You're about to go on a mission that's beyond dangerous, but you're going to show these low-tech barbarians what it looks like when the Empire seeks justice. Now, let me hear what you have to say to that. This time the cheer rose from every soldier's throat. I picked up Mickey's voice and magnified it until he was so loud that even the rebel chiefs themselves might hear it in their distant lairs and shake with fear. My whole body hummed with happiness as I did this, so full of patriotism was I then, as I still am today, Your Honour. The soldiers jumped onto the air scooters and were soon dashing across the stretches of plain that branched between the mountains and hills of Mars. Mickey and Marietta flew together, with Mickey in the back. We rode without incident until we passed the towers and domes of a large rebel city called Yira. Some of the soldiers slowed their craft and lobbed firebombs. I was trying to convince Mickey to do the same when he picked up Lola and, instead of firing her, stepped to the edge of the scooter and looked at the ground flying past. He tapped Marietta on the shoulder, said a coarse goodbye and leaped away, hurtling some ten metres through the air before landing with a rough clank on his sea boots. We stood in a barren landscape, jagged rocks and spindly weeds on all sides. As the last scooters of the platoon jetted away, I could see the white towers of Yira about three kilometres away, clinging to the foothills of the mountains. "'What are we doing?' I cried, clenching my padding tightly around Mickey's head. "'We had orders to assist with the mission. "'We are to penetrate and attack the enemy's most vulnerable targets.' "'He raised his hands and patted my sides gently. "'Remember what I said before,' he told me. "'Trust me now. I do what I do for the Empire.' "'For the Empire? "'But you've left your post to wander alone in rebel territory.' "'Fear not, little Tortuga,' he said. "'With that, it shames me to tell you, "'he reached up and turned me off. "'When I was activated again, it was night. "'We were in a hillside city, in the midst of a battle. "'My first action was to assess the trajectories "'of all projectiles coming from the enemy troops below. "'I flashed a signal, and Mickey brought his body low. Seconds later, bullets flew over his head.' At the same time, I checked the air for toxic traces. I found slightly elevated levels of carbon complexes associated with explosives, but nothing in high enough concentration to be dangerous. With this accomplished, I turned my attention to the immediate surroundings. 
The people who flocked around us were not wearing smart helms or sea boots, and I detected the electronic signature of Imperial smart helms coming from the ranks of the attacking army. Yet the bullets and heat beams that came from the plain below were poorly aimed, often hitting the side of the mountain far from the city walls. I could not make sense of it. I contacted Mickey for answers. Oh, master, I said, what is happening? I find our current situation highly confusing. Listen, Tortuga, he said, do not distract me now. I have important work here. A man walked up to us, tall and bareheaded with dusky skin. He greeted Mickey and offered his hand. Mickey took it without hesitation. I'm glad there are at least a few among your people who respect our autonomy, said the man. My name is Hilo Shapinsky. I'm Mickey Ford, citizen number 27AIP2Z7U. So they really give you people alphanumerics instead of last names, eh? I always thought that was a myth. We have last names too, said Mickey, but there are a lot of us. They have to keep track of us somehow. Hilo squinted at the brightness of a rocket launcher firing below. I gave Mickey the duck signal and he hit the floor a second ahead of everyone else. Someone behind us screamed and I detected the presence of flesh particles in the air. By that point, Your Honour, I had come to the only conclusion that seemed plausible. My master, as much as I loved him, as much as he treated me well, was in a rebel base of some kind and was assisting the enemy. My spirit sagged, and I wished that he would just reach his hand up and turn me off forever. I was like the poor boy who sees his father push his mother into the path of a train. I was like the prisoner who must wind the rope for the noose that will hang him. I was like the company man who discovers that his firm makes its money dealing in illicit human organs. What's that, Your Honour? Is it necessary to open my carapace in this way? That rear panel is intended to be opened only by a trained technician. You could get a nasty shock. Your Honour, please don't remove my chip. Would you have me speak only in stuttering platitudes as I bargain for my life? I'm only a poor smart helm struggling to express myself as best I can, often out of key, I know. Suit yourself, O oh fellow servant of the Empire. My master stood on the cliffs over Yera. He continued to talk with Hilo, making the most repulsive comments on the beauty of the Martian hill country, the nobility of the rebel cause, the superiority of Martian dark beers, and so on. But what came next was even worse. Hilo pointed over the precipice at the Imperial forces advancing up the hill. Your smart helm allows you to track their projectiles, correct? Mickey nodded, forcing me into the appearance of agreement with this awful conversation. Do you think you could use it to defend this position until our reinforcements arrive? Mickey grunted his assent and patted Lola's body. Is he really going to do this? I said on our private channel. I'm afraid, she said, her signal weaker than ever before. I don't know what I'll do if he points me at Imperial troops. I'm programmed to obey my master, but also to defend the Empire. My mind went back to the memories of a prouder battle, and I sampled what I had stored up at that time. In that moment, I made my decision. 
I can't do much about heat beams, said Mickey, but with these two together I can detonate most of your basic grenades and missiles before they... There he stopped, his breath catching in his throat. Lola fell from his hands, clattered against the stone floor. Veins rose and pulsed on his skull as he struggled for breath, a struggle which sent terrible vibrations through my carapace. He scraped against my sides with his fingers and finally ripped me from his head. I landed roughly on the ground. I saw his body shiver above me. I watched the skin of his face grow splotchy and red. He began to fall. Hilo tried to hold him up, but Mickey pushed him away. Tortuga, he whispered. You didn't trust me. I had pumped all the toxins I'd saved from that first day of battle into his airstream, a mixture containing carbon monoxide, mercury vapour, tetraethyl lead and various trace elements. I felt so bad, Your Honour. I felt like a... I felt like what I was, a being whose only drive was to protect its owner, but had instead become his murderer. All I ever wanted was to protect him, to escort him safely through the clouds of toxic gas, to assist him on his way to victory. It took him more than an hour to die. Your Honour, I hear your words, but I ask you if the Empire has not a single engineer who can identify the flaw in my programming. That way I could rejoin the battle and proudly sing the Imperial chants again. No other smart helm of my model has ever been court-martialed. We were a good batch, a good model. It's only that I was too thoughtless in my patriotism. Perhaps if I had analysed the situation more deeply, if I'd considered that Imperial forces would never shoot so widely off the target as they did that night, I could have guessed the truth. It was all a show to prove Mickey's usefulness and move him up the ranks of the enemy. There he could have crippled the rebels from the inside with a few words of misguidance. That way, the war could have ended faster, which is what he wanted. Mickey always regretted the killing he had to do, even when it was rebel bodies in the crosshairs. I assume that those feelings had led him to defect to the rebel side. What I should have done was to consider how much more quickly the war could end with a few well-placed insiders. What I should have done was to trust him, but I was not programmed to know these things. A museum exhibit? I beg you no, judge and master. I simply cannot imagine such a life. To go over these painful memories every day for the amusement of tourists and children would be cruel punishment. I would rather be disassembled here on the spot. I'm a creature of battle, not education, and certainly not entertainment. To end my days without the tang of nerve gas in my filters, without a brave skull to cling to and protect. My life will have no meaning. All will be regret and drudgery. Yes, Your Honour, I know your time is valuable. Welcome, visitors. Welcome to the Imperial Military Museum. For those who've never seen one before, I am a genuine smart helm designed to give our soldiers the ultimate in prowess, guidance and safety on the battlefield. My carapace is designed to withstand direct impacts, even from projectiles travelling at near relativistic speeds. And these hanging parts in front are my filters. You can touch them if you want, don't be afraid. They're designed to remove any known poison from the air at the molecular level. 
Chlorine filtration, check. Carbon monoxide filtration, check. Mercury vapour filtration, check. What's that, young man? Yes, the story is true. That's why I have to remain here, when I would rather be on some warship, with the sweet harmonies of imperial hymns in my mind, as I gear up for battle. Would you like to put me on? Don't be afraid, I won't hurt you. All right then, suit yourself. I hope you enjoy the rest of the museum, O oh fellow servants of the Empire. And that was our story. I hope that it doesn't annoy too many of you as just another eco-sermon, although it does have sea salt, fresh pine scents, and mowing down like grass. And here's one more message from our narrator. Do you need to read bedtime stories to a pallid and sickly infant? Now I can think of the very thing, a copy of Befuddled by Cormorants. 52 Stories from Hooting Yard on the Air by Frank Key in paperback format. Go to www.hootingyard.org and click on the link you'll find there to buy a copy of this online-only available book. I have a copy of Befuddled by Cormorants, and it does make great bedtime reading. My toddler is readily calmed to slumber by such pieces as Those Gubernatorial Bells, Tiny Enid Extinguishes a Volcano, and How I Plunged into the Bottomless Viper Pit of Gar. It's fun stuff for a slightly warped state of mind, so check it out. Our first story of the year was Greg Van Eekout's somewhat Philip K. Dickian story, Authorverks. The response to this one was very solid. Even Simon said, I'm not going to dissect this, just simply say more please. If you're as familiar as I am with Simon's comments, that's high praise. There was some deeper criticism in the forums. Jim said, I noticed that it had the same ring to it that a lot of the first-person narrative sci-fi stories have, in that the narrator is gruff and embittered, with the fantastic elements of the story coming across as not only commonplace, but something of an irritant. Others agreed with that sentiment. Wakela said, I'm a little tired of this guy. And some felt that the end was a bit weaker than the build-up. Overall, though, it went over very well for Strength of Ideas. By the way, this was the first story after launching the new forums, at forum.escapeartists.info, and one consequence is that we now have feedback scattered across two different places, the forums and the blog post. Sooner or later, I'm going to figure out how to integrate those two, and eventually, I think the forums will become the standard place for discussion. In the meantime, feel free to do whatever you're most comfortable with, but remember that the other community is there. The forums have been doing phenomenally well. Right now we have 226 members, which is really not bad for about three weeks. One final reminder on the Flash Fiction Contest. If you're interested in sending us your stories of 300 words or less, the deadline for contest entries is January 31st. I'll be generous and call it midnight, January 31st, Pacific Time, for all you people who just have to do it at the last minute. I'm really amazed at this. Right now we're edging on 200 entries, and with the initial round being posted 12 at a time on the forums, it's going to take us well into February to judge them. The voting and discussion on the stories has been very active and uniformly very intelligent. Regardless of who wins, I can already foresee a lot of great Flash stories coming out of this, and it's been a great way to get the forum community kickstarted. Escape Pod is released on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. 
You can share it with your fellow citizens of the Empire, just don't sell it to them or subvert it with rebel propaganda. For hideous stories of the rebels' terrifying practices, listen to Pseudopod at pseudopod.org. And if you'd like to hear the glorious words of the Empire in permanent archive form, buy our CDs at poddisc.com. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju, inspiring martial music for defeating giant monsters across the system. Hear more at daikaiju.org. That was our show for this week. I've got two closing quotes this week. One comes from Robert E. Lee, who said, It is well that war is so terrible, or we should grow too fond of it. And the other comes from Ronald Reagan. History teaches that war begins when governments believe the price of aggression is cheap. We'll see you next week. Until then, have fun. Have fun.